Cape Up is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Are you looking to learn a thing or two about getting your finances in order, saving, and investing? Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and the Washington Post Brand Studio. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Cape Up. The race for the Democratic nomination for president in 2020 is already underway. Elizabeth Warren announced her exploratory committee. Julian Castro is expected to be next. And everyone is waiting on Beto and Biden. But there's another B you'll be talking about very soon. No, not him. Buttigieg, Mayor Pete Buttigieg of South Bend, Indiana. He's a veteran. He's unapologetically progressive. He's openly gay. And before leaving office, President Obama named him one of four people who were the future of the Democratic Party. And after listening to this, you'll understand why. Mayor Pete Buttigieg, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. All right. So first things first. Did I pronounce your name correctly? Yeah, you got it. Last name, Buttigieg. That's right. Um, where's that from? Malta. It's actually a very common name on the island of Malta and not really anywhere else. Have but, you been... Uh, Oh, yeah. My dad immigrated from Alta in the 70s. So uh-huh. uh, he was the eldest of eight. We got a big family over there. And so uh, whenever we get a chance, uh, I go over. It's a beautiful country. Lots mm-hmm. of history. Fascinating place. Smack in the middle of the Mediterranean. Uh, the Maltese vote is not huge. Uh, I, think there's, <laughs> I think there's four other Maltese that we know of uh, in South Bend, including my dad. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating part of the world. So are you the pride of Malta? Uh, I don't about that they, I think they've noticed that you know I exist and, and they think it's pretty cool but uh, uh, yeah well I, I, I you are the mayor of South Bend Indiana yeah um, you are in your second ter- second four-year term that's right so um, you when you ran the first time you got 76 percent of the vote mm-hmm. when you ran the second time you got 80 percent of the vote yep you're not term limited so why on earth would you not want to run for a third term. Well, I love my job. I mean, being able to serve, uh, obviously, anytime you get to serve your hometown is compelling, but also South Bend's trajectory is uh, a really exciting thing to have been part of. The week I got into the race in 2011, we were characterized as a dying city by Newsweek. And now we've seen population growth, economic growth. A lot of things have really changed, and I'm, I'm proud of that. But the whole idea of my first campaign, uh, our motto even, was the idea of a fresh start. And, uh, you know, mayor's not a job you can have forever. And uh, I want to make sure that I'm not the last to realize when it's time for a fresh start again. Uh, You know, in an interview you did with Rolling Stone, you said something that captured my imagination, not just because of what it said about your city, Mm -hmm. but just in terms of your your thinking. And Mm -hmm. you said... um, And this was the reporter trying to get you to brag on yourself and what you've been able to do as mayor of South Bend. And you said, um, our city believes in itself again. And you go on to say, we had to paint a picture of the future that did not translate into nostalgia. The word again was not part of our vision. We never used that word. The message from the start was the Studebaker plant isn't coming back, but we are. And here's how. And when people heard that message, they didn't need to be young for it to resonate with them. That's right. Talk more about how that vision played into this resurgence, this revitalization uh, in South Bend. 
Well, again, this was a city that had been through a lot. You know, when we lost the Studebaker factories in 1963, but, you know, back when it was really the big four, not the big three. I mean, it's hard to picture today how major of a, of a presence that was as an employer. And then it fell apart basically overnight. And so, uh, you know, even though I was born 20 years after Studebaker closed, my entire life, the city was wrestling with that past. And ironically, the only way that we could capture the energy of the people who created this very innovative economy in South Bend in the early 20th century was not to look back at them, but to emulate their focus on the future. And we had to shift the conversation. There were a lot of people, a lot of the old timers saying, we just got to find some way to get something like Studebaker making cars here again. And we had to change that that thinking, that it wasn't about turning back the clock. I don't think any successful political message or community message can contain the word again or the word back. It's not about going back. Uh, we recognize uh, and honor our past. We understand that we're building on a tradition. But when you look into that tradition, chances are the people that you most admire are the ones who kept their eyes squarely on the future. And that's what we've got to do, too. So then how so then how did you um, translate this this mantra? What exactly did you do? to show people that here concretely is what I mean well, by looking to the future. We had to clear away some wreckage, first of all, literally in a sense. We had so many vacant and abandoned houses in South Bend that uh, when I took office, nobody could tell me how many there were. So we spent a year not just inventorying them, but coming up with a plan and wound up dealing with over a thousand vacant and abandoned houses in a thousand days just to get our neighborhoods into a, a more healthy state. Uh, we also started looking at an economic trajectory that didn't hinge on landing this or that big employer. You know, a mayor comes under huge pressure to use tax incentives to effectively buy jobs. Oh, yeah. A lot of stories of that recently. And yet that that's not necessarily economically stable. What we realized was that uh, actually if we're going to have 20,000 people employed, I'd rather have 200 at a time multiplied by 100 different employers, then have all our eggs in one basket. And so uh, we really tried to cultivate manufacturing, advanced manufacturing businesses that we already had, in addition to recognizing that beyond manufacturing, we needed to grow in industries that didn't even exist when Studebaker was making cars, like data, for example. Mm -hmm. So we have a, a growing data center and data analytics industry because we have tremendously good fiber optic connectivity that follows the old railway lines and, and highway right-of-ways. Uh, some of the very same pieces of infrastructure that made a lot of sense in the early 20th century now carry a completely different kind of value. And once we figured out how to tap into it, uh, we had a whole new way to grow as, as an economy and as a community. Uh, so it's about taking, it's, it's not you know finding one silver bullet to grow a community again, but it's adding all of these up. And each time we had a success, like the thousand houses, which was a you know this very publicized uh, and risky goal because we put the goal out there and then mm -hmm. said, "Okay, are we going to make it or not?" Once we'd made it, then it gave the community license to believe it could do other things, and it was part of our ability to tell ourselves a different story that South Bend was back. How resistant were people to your plans? Because I can only imagine. Well, I mean, resistance. remember, we're talking about <laughs> Indiana. Yeah. Indiana is a red state, and here yeah. you are, and we're going to get into this a little bit later. Mm a progressive, proudly progressive mayor. So yeah. how, how much resistance did you um, encounter? There was plenty, especially on the front end. But what I found was that each time we got results, each time we kept a promise, delivered something we said we were going to deliver, uh, I got a little bit of a longer leash to try other things. And the beauty of, uh, especially in local government, where you're under tremendous pressure to deliver, but also when you succeed or fail, everybody can tell 
There's no <laughs> alternative facts, right? If there's a hole in the road, I can't say, you know, it's the best road ever. There's no holes in it. Like, people <laughs> will call you out on that, right? <laughs> I mean, you could you, give it a shot. You could try, but I can tell you exactly what would happen. I mean, you know, you plow the snow or you don't plow the snow. And so you're in, a, I think, the, this world where, where at the end of the day, if the reality is moving in the right direction, you actually get credit for that. And so one of the reasons why I was able to, to get a higher margin in my reelection than the first time around, one of the reasons why uh, the first time we did a poll while I was mayor, we found I was equally popular among Democrats, Republicans, and independents. It had nothing to do with uh, faking some kind of conservatism that wasn't me. It was about uh, delivering consistently enough that even if people disagreed with me on some things ideologically, they trusted that I was going to bring my best to serve the city and that it was going to continue producing good results. You know, um, you did something rather unusual, again, for a progressive mayor in a state that is a red state, um, you came out yeah. in the middle of a re-election campaign. Yeah. During the <laughs> middle of your first re-election campaign, you came out uh, through an op-ed in the South Bend Tribune, That's right. right? On June 16th, 2015, and I remember that date because that's the, also the same day that Donald Trump announced he was running for president. Okay. Um, why? I was ready. I mean, you're, you're ready when you're ready. In my case, I, I wanted to have a personal life. Uh, I think in my first few years as mayor, uh, I didn't mind that uh, dating was more or less unavailable to me because uh, I was completely absorbed in my work, and I loved my work. But um, there comes a point where you realize you're not getting any younger. Um, once I'd reached the point where I'd, I guess, come out to myself, um, I realized that I couldn't go on forever without disclosing this in a way that uh, uh, it wouldn't. You know, my hope is that 10 or 20 years from now, uh, or at least by the time, you know, I, I have kids who are who are becoming adults, it, it won't be a thing you have to do. I mean, straight people don't have to come out. So I don't know. I don't know That's why sure. we do. And, and you just show up at some event and my, my date would be a dude and everybody would be like, oh, they'd notice that. And that's that. Right. But right. the reality in Indiana in 2015 or for that matter, 2018 was was not that. I knew that I had to say something, do something publicly and just answer the question clearly and honestly and once. And so that's what I did. And um, there was no pressure on you. There was no. No, it's not like a lot of people were. Did yeah, it? Yeah, but um, but I knew that I had to just get that out there in in, in a way. And at the same time, it, again, because it is a personal thing and it doesn't feel like something you should have to announce. Then the, the puzzle was, how do you do it? Do you just kind of let it slip? It's kind of we're trying to work it into a conversation <laughs> in a TV interview or something, right? <laughs> um, and so I realized I should just do do what I often do when when I have something to say, which is sit down, write it up, uh, share it, and then. Uh, you know, the the sun came up the next day, and I was the the, the mayor dealing with the same issues I was the day before. And um, uh, we didn't know what the political impact would be. Um, there was definitely some some anxiety on on my campaign team. But what we found was that uh, you know we we just trusted that the community would care mostly about the kind of job I was doing and rate me based on that. And I think that's what happened. Um, yeah, that is what happened because the political impact was you increased your margin of victory by four percentage points. As I said before, you won election with 76%. In the middle of your reelect, you come out and then you win reelection by a bigger margin with, with uh, 80% of the vote. And again, as I said before, and as people who probably know who you are know, you are an unapologetic progressive. Mm -hmm. um, what does that mean 
as a progressive who's the mayor of a of a town in a red state? Well, for one thing, I think it means that most people don't align all of the candidates, all their political choices on a left to right spectrum and then have another dot there that says, here's where I am on that left to right spectrum and then say, I want the person who's closest to my dot. There's a lot more to this. There's uh, relationships. There's, uh, again, results. I mean, the difference between, I mean, I mean, no disrespect to legislators and the work that they do, but the difference for a mayor is um, you deliver stuff, you get stuff done, you succeed or you fail and people can tell and you're accountable for that. And uh, I think that there's a chance to keep delivering uh, in, in a way that's consistent with progressive values and earn more credit among people who are open-minded. You know, you know, I think, frankly, our country is pretty ideologically scrambled right now. I would argue that the current president doesn't even have an ideology, just a style. And so it, it's a good moment, uh, again, not necessarily through pretending to be something you're not, mm-hmm. but through engaging as many people as possible to reach across some of these partisan or ideological divides that have held us back so long. And it's certainly worked well for me in, in my corner of Indiana. And I think, uh, frankly, my party should be doing a lot more of this uh, across rural areas and red states uh, in every part of the U.S. Well, talk more about that, about what the Democratic Party should be doing. We spent a lot of time the last two years pulling our hair out about what the Democratic Party should do to reach, quote, white working class Mm. voters. How do we reach more, reach those folks who turn their back on the Democratic Party as if they were actually looking at the Democratic Party and and voting for Donald Trump? Um, Is the party in as dire straits as um, it would seem? Well, first of all, we should recognize that, uh, you know, the current leadership in Washington, uh, especially the White House, is spectacularly unpopular uh, and that uh, our party just took uh, took the House by an unbelievable margin. It's not like we should be wringing our hands. At the same time, I, I do think that this party continues to struggle to articulate what it is. Uh, besides the opposition. And from my perspective, there's plenty to be in opposition too, but that's not an agenda. It's not a vision. I believe we need to have a vision that will make as much sense in 2040 as it does in 2020. Well, then let me challenge you. And so then what is the, you're a Democrat. Yeah. Um, what is the vision of the Democratic Party? Well, to me, it if you want to fit it into a bumper sticker, it's about freedom, democracy, and security. And we have a way of thinking about freedom, democracy, and security that's maybe a little different than our conservative friends, so much so that we may have fallen out of practice using some of these words, especially freedom, uh, which has unfortunately been abandoned into the hands of those who have a narrow imagination of freedom and think of it only as freedom from government. Freedom from government matters a lot, obviously. But there's a lot of other things that can make somebody unfree. Your credit card company can make you unfree. Your cable company can make you unfree. Your neighbor can make you unfree. Your county clerk can make you unfree. Uh, And so we've got to recognize that good government, not necessarily bigger or smaller, but good government is sometimes the only thing that secures our freedom. And we've got to explain that. Uh, when we are competing with people who just want to burn the house down when it comes to government. Wait, so ex- so explain that. How is good government um, uh, freedom? Well, um, if you can't sue your credit card company when they get caught ripping you off, you're not free. So one of the reasons we have a Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is to defend your economic freedom. 
you know, for me, this is very personal because one of the most important freedoms I have enjoyed in my life that came to us during my adult lifetime was the freedom to marry the person that I'm in love with. Uh, that is a freedom that exists by the grace of a single vote uh, from the judiciary branch in the Supreme Court. Um, good government brought that freedom to me that otherwise might have been denied by a, uh, you know, a county official who uh, uh, decided that, that my marriage should depend on that person's interpretation of their own religion. Um, so, I mean, these are freedoms that really matter front mm-hmm. and center in our personal lives every day. And yet we have allowed ourselves to get caught in this vocabulary as if the only freedom that matters uh, is freedom from government. And, you know, freedom from government intrusion is pretty important, too. At a moment when we have a a White House that has some authoritarian tendencies, I think it's natural for uh, Democrats to be talking about that. So that's what I mean when I say Mm -hmm. freedom. What about democracy? Well, I think democracy is very much on the ballot. It's very much at stake right now. Uh, You know, the history of this country has been one of evolution toward more democracy, more people in particular having access to the ballot. And that seems to have stalled out right now. Uh, it's actually becoming harder for many eligible people to vote. And so in the same way that economically, there seem to be a lot of conservatives who are more worried about a, uh, a penny spent on the undeserving poor than, uh, than a dollar spent by the undeserving rich. Um, there are people who seem to be more concerned about the million-to-one obscure case of uh, voter fraud than the proven case of thousands and thousands of people um, suffering from what I think is a much bigger fraud, which is voter suppression. Um, that is a question of democracy. Uh, whether or not it is acceptable to have districts drawn so that politicians are choosing their voters rather than the other way around is a question of democracy. The fitness of the electoral college for the modern age, or any age, is a question of democracy. No. Um, I mean, right? I, it, it, at risk of sounding naive, one might think that the person who gets the most votes probably ought to be president. Uh, and one thing that uh, people in my home state uh, of Indiana uh, have in common with people in Puerto Rico, fellow Americans, uh, is that, uh, uh, you know, in, in our case, we generally don't have a say in, in the vote for president. Uh, if you live in Indiana, maybe once every 40 years, does your preference over the presidency even matter? Is that a democracy? Is that democratic? I would argue that our side is more interested in that. The, the, the reason we're, we're called the Democratic Party, that's not for nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, and nobody else is going to stand up for some of these Democratic principles if we don't shout them from the rooftops. And don't even get me started on the things we, uh, that are more widely talked about, like, uh, like money in politics and what that does to democracy. So I think we have an account of, of democracy that's very important. We have an account of freedom that's very important. Then security, which includes economic security. And making sure, you, because people don't enjoy any level of security if they can't come up with 400 bucks uh, to get through an emergency, which is true of uh, a shockingly large number of Americans today. Um, but also, if you just think of the 21st century security threats, um, there's this fixation on border security at the moment. Border security is important. Uh, what about climate security? What about election security? What about cyber security? These are uh, forms of security that have been tested not in a good way, in the last few years, for America, right now, affecting our lives. And it seems like we are the only people prepared to talk about it. We're up against folks who don't even believe that climate security is an issue, even as we have people losing their lives from uh, wildfires in California to storms on the Gulf Coast, partly as a consequence of our failure to lead the world into a new era of climate security. These are issues that I think people can get, especially... Uh, when we make them concrete, when they put them in real-world terms. If, when I talk about climate, the, the, the picture that rolls in your head is 
uh, a hunk of ice falling off uh, Antarctica, like you would get on the B-roll on cable news whenever somebody right. does with a the story. polar bear, with the polar it. bear and the pine tree, you know. Right. Then it sounds remote. But when I picture climate change, I picture the uh, thousand-year flood we had in South Bend, uh, soon followed by a 500-year flood, which either means I have ridiculous statistical luck or something's changing. And I think about the families who were displaced from their homes because of that, people I know. Um, That's what climate is to me, climate change, climate security. And um, if one party has no answers at all and doesn't even want to admit that it's a legitimate question, then ours had better come up with answers that are convincing. I have to ask you um, more along the lines of, uh, of the party. And you gave us a, I keep coming back to this Rolling Stone mm-hmm. interview that you did because it was very uh, illuminating, especially when it comes to your view of the Democratic Party and, and the left. Um, you said what, what that whole debate about whether Democrats should go more to the center or further left gets wrong is that the center of gravity of the American people is way to the left of the center of gravity of Congress Mm -hmm. and in many ways to the left of the National Democratic Party. I read that. You can see right here. I underline and put a big star Mm -hmm. because you just articulated there what I have not been able to articulate when trying to tell people that stop saying that the Democratic Party is doing sort of the same thing that the Republican Party did on the right with the Tea Party. It's just not it's not not the same. Right. right. So talk, talk more about that. Well, again, because, yeah, this is where people actually are. So if you look at what most people actually believe, including people in uh, rural areas, people in the Midwest, people in what we think of as conservative areas or at least Republican areas, uh, you go issue by issue and you find out that their views are often views that people in the Democratic Party hesitate to embrace for fear of some kind of electoral consequence. And uh, even some of the most sensitive issues, uh, you know, you look at uh, you look at the gun debate. On something like, uh, you know, universal background checks, there's 80 to 90 percent agreement among Americans. You know, my in-laws, who, who uh, may often vote Republican and take gun rights seriously, also think that it's common sense that you ought to have some kind of background check for everybody. Um, and yet we're afraid to, to, to mention it often. Reaching independence is not a function of just taking some geometric average between where Democrats have been and where Republicans have been. Uh, It is about trying to find answers uh, for people in their everyday lives. And frankly, a lot of those answers and a lot of people's existing preferences are in a space that we would currently call the left. Uh, You know, a common sense position on the minimum wage is that it's too low. (laughs) Uh, Some of these things we've overthought. Um, And the reality is that uh, people already get it. How else would you explain that so many voters, you know, in Indiana, for example, a lot of people who voted for Obama and Trump, and Pence, and me. <laughs> uh, these are not people who are, you know, looking One of these things is not quite like the right? other. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I think we have been a little bit afraid. You, you're right. There's, there's nothing symmetrical about recent behavior by Republicans and by Democrats. Um, and uh, for reasons of even-handedness, I understand why uh, some in, in the press feel compelled to treat it as if it were, but it just isn't. Well, what about the, this? your contention that the country in many ways is to the left of the national Democratic Party? I think it is. I mean, on, on many issues. The party has uh, hesitated to engage on issues of war and peace recently, uh, even though it's clear that the country, and increasingly even conservatives, um, think we need to uh, put an end to endless war, that it probably doesn't make sense that we're 
operating all over the world on a use of military force authorized in 2001 to deal with 9-11 in Afghanistan. Um, you know, it, it's amazing in my short <laughs> political lifetime. I remember 2002 when uh, a great many Democrats would lie and pretend that they were for the war uh, in Iraq uh, to see, by 2016, Republicans lying and pretending they were against it. I mean, think about where the center must be if that's where we are politically. Mm -hmm. So it's true on foreign policy. It's true on domestic policy, where most people think that you ought to be able to uh, make <laughs> enough of a living, even a minimum wage, uh, to get through your day, that you ought to be able to get health care one way or the other, um, that people shouldn't be afraid of, uh, of gun violence when they go to school. I mean, these, these things are common sense before you even get to things that are shifting a little bit, uh, whether it's uh, marriage equality, which shifted very quickly, or drug policy and uh, sentencing, which I think is uh, in the middle of a shift right now mm -hmm. that's very important. Cape Up is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Are you looking to learn a thing or two about getting your finances in order, saving, and investing? Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and the Washington Post brand studio. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Um, you talk about the difference between... Um, conservatives your age and progressives your age and how conservatives have a clear view of of who they are, what they believe, who their touchstones are. And again, in this Rolling Stone interview, you said the left has become has become the side with less philosophical cohesion mm -hmm. and less of a, a connection to guiding principles. We've spent the last 30 years arguing not about whether our policies and ideas are right, but whether they're close enough to the Republican side. Right. Again, I completely underline that. Flesh that out a little bit more. Well, part of it is somewhere along the line, you know, somebody had a tactical insight in the 90s that, that uh, we could win more votes if we uh, became more ideologically to the center. Um, and that was very clever tactically at the time. Um, but we're in a different landscape right now. And what got lost along the way was tactics over time began, I think, to overtake philosophy. There are some other deeper dynamics that I think were going on in the university world and the think tank world. Specifically, the right wing uh, created an and funded an elaborate uh, think tank infrastructure and connected it up to universities right. in order to make up for their perception that the universities were already doing this kind of work for the ideological left. Meanwhile, the uh, left-aligned people at the universities were increasingly becoming absorbed in really obscure postmodern issues, especially in the humanities, you know, disciplines that had, frankly, very little connection to the real world. Uh, you know, I mean, it was theories about theories. And so uh, a lot of those dynamics added up to an environment where if you're a young Republican, um, your college Republican chapter is probably getting financial support. You are getting an internship, likely a paid one, where you not only work in a Republican member of Congress's offices, but you can also go to functions at the Heritage Foundation. And you can get your copy of Ayn Rand or your copy of, of Hayek, and you know your gospel and verse, uh, chapter and verse, um, by the time you were emerging into the then professional pipeline that is ready to lift you up. Um, we just don't do it that way. <laughs> and, and maybe it's okay that the left is a little more decentralized. Um, we're, we're not a command and control sort of uh, group, and, and, and that's all right. That creates a lot of problems. But it does create a lot of problems, especially at a moment when, you know, we have been more absorbed in this question of how to win than who we are. And then perversely, that's made it harder for us to win. <laughs> because we can't explain who we are. And one right. thing about people, especially young voters, especially Midwestern voters, is whether they're following the blow-by-blow -blow of your policy arguments or not to check if you're too far to the left or too far to the right, um, they can just tell if you know who you are. 
And if you don't, they can smell it, and they would rather go with somebody who does. So given everything you just said, I'm beginning to get a clearer picture as to why people lose their minds in a good way when your name pops up or they enthusiastically just mention your name. Um, For a lot of people, they didn't know who you were until they read the New Yorker article where then-President Obama mentioned just three names, and yours was one of them. Um, Why do do you think um, so many high-powered Democrats uh, believe in you in that way? That's probably not for me to say. What I know is that... uh I'm not the only person who cares about these questions. And I think that right now, those of us who, on one hand, care about these philosophical questions and how they all connect up, and on the other hand, also care about, you know, very concrete realities. I mean, my day to day, there are moments where I will engage in in a philosophical debate about the nature of the uh, democratic commitments to freedom and where the left ought to head and what it means electorally. Um, but, uh, you know, I also need to make sure that uh, our leaf pickup equipment um, gets swapped <laughs> out to snowplows on right. time, right? <laughs> Otherwise, I, I'm unemployed. Um, and so that relationship between theory and practice, I think, is very important. Um, I think being a mayor gives you a great uh, uh, perch because as a mayor, you're in many ways, uh, your life is sort of applied political political philosophy. You're taking your views about fairness and then you're you're applying them to some very basic day-to-day decisions. Um, but I think there, there's an emerging generation of people uh, in office who are wrestling with these big questions and these tactical ones. And there's a much bigger emerging generation of Americans who are looking for something just very different than what we've seen. And for a generation, by the way, which has more at stake than ever, right, the generation that's going to be on the business end of climate change, the generation that stands to make less than our parents for the first time in American history unless something is done. Uh, the generation that grew up with school shootings and doesn't know a world uh, where where 9-11 hadn't happened. Um, I think that appetite for new voices and and different kinds of voices is going to grow. And and I'm just glad that I I have the privilege of being part of that conversation. So so then is that why you ran for uh, chair of the Democratic Democratic National Committee? Partly, yeah. And, and I, I was not expecting to do that. Nobody sits on his mother's knee and says they want to be a party chair one day. I, you know, I didn't uh, uh, form an ambition early in life to be a DNC chair. But what happened there was I sensed that my party was at this crossroads and, 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 and missing a lot of things, including uh, you know, connection to the industrial Midwest, including connection to an emerging generation, uh, including adequate attention to state and local affairs and, and learning how to not treat the White House like it's the only office that matters. So I, I saw that struggle going on in the party. And then I, I, I looked at my own story and I thought, well, I'm from the Midwest and I do local government all day and I'm from a new <laughs> generation. Maybe I could be the answer. Um, and it turns out I was not. <laughs> at least I didn't become the chairman. Um, but I'm really glad we, we entered that conversation because I think uh, many of the ideas that that, uh, that I was able to bring to the table found their way into the the bigger debate about where the party was headed. Um, and uh, and at the same time, I, I returned home to a job that I love and, and was none the worse off for having done it other than that it was uh, really hard work. Has the party has the party um, gotten better uh, in the has it been two years? 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh. In, in, in the two years since you since you ran that race, I think so. I mean, not only are we seeing some encouraging results, making up ground. Uh, again, I think what's going on in the state House and Senate seats is just as important or more as what gets more coverage, which is what happens here in Washington. But on, on all of those fronts, we've we've gained ground. Uh, I think the party is really trying in good faith to deal with mistakes that were made in the past. I think you're going to see this in everything from the approach to the debate schedule, where I believe they're they're bending over backwards uh, in the name of fairness, to uh, efforts to upgrade and modernize some of the, the organizing tools and tactics that the party uses. But it's a long road. I mean, it's a very complex and difficult thing to figure out what a party is even for. If you don't need uh, a list of activists furnished by the party to know where your organization is because you can just find them on Facebook. Hmm. Um, if you don't need the the compliance and accounting mechanics of uh, a politi- large political party to handle uh, campaign finance contributions because it's so decentralized now, um, you know, the very purpose of a party is changing. The role of a party is changing. It doesn't mean it's less important, but it's very different. And I think all of us who care about the party are are feeling our way through that what that actually means. And, and I know that the, that the folks at the DNC are doing their best. Um, there are a lot of people, uh, like I said, who believe in you, big name people. They don't just talk about you as, um, oh, this is this young up and comer. They're talking about you for twenty twenty. Hmm. Yep. Okay. Was that a question? <laughs> <laughs> That's called an interview tactic. Um, can we let's have a real conversation yeah. ab- about 2020? Yeah. Do you think that any mayor, not just you, I mean, there are three mayors who are being talked about as potential presidential candidates. You, former mayor um, of New Orleans, Mitch Landrieu, right. and current mayor of Los Angeles, Eric Garcetti. Yeah. We wouldn't even be talking about you guys, right? Were it not for for Donald Trump, yeah, it's not lost on me that you know at no point, probably in the last hundred years, would a mayor, especially a mayor of a smaller city in the industrial Midwest uh, like South Bend, show up in these articles or these conversations. And I think part of what it signifies is that this is a this is a season for mayors, especially in the Democratic Party. Uh, a lot of the leadership of our party is in the cities, but also, you know. Sometimes it feels like cities are the most democratic and functioning level of government that we've got left. So the more paralyzed Washington has become, the more I think people are looking to cities as a place where things actually get done. You don't you don't hear about a city government shutting down over ideology for the simple reason that we deliver drinking water and you need water to live. And so we're just not going to let that happen. Many of the pathologies that are just broken government at other levels. It's different in cities. And, and there's a level of energy, there's a level of immediacy and urgency and accountability that mayors experience that I think might uh, might speak to what people wish they saw more of in Washington um, at, at a moment when I think people understand intuitively that the answers aren't necessarily going to come uh, from, from Washington. So I think mayors are getting a different kind of look mm-hmm. than before, and I think that's a healthy thing. Um, okay, so um, if you... If you run, you would have to win primaries. You would then have to win the general. Uh, what are the demographics of the electorate um, a Democratic nominee would need to win, say, the primaries? 
Well, I don't know that demography is ever destiny, but it's certainly the case that any Democratic nominee, and I think any American president, ought to unite and cultivate a diverse base. And I think it's especially true uh, you know, on the Democratic side in the nominating process, that we have nominees or candidates for the nomination who can speak to a lot of people where they are and put together that coalition without ever falling into the temptation of saying something to one group that you would be embarrassed to have repeated to another group. And that, again, is something that mayors learn very quickly, <laughs> if necessary, yeah. the hard way. You just can't say something at the uh, Chamber of Commerce that you don't want uh, coming back to the folks you're going to see at the Union Hall that night. And so you learn to have, of, of course, the concerns of, of different parts of our coalition uh, are varied. Uh, the concerns of the Latino community uh, are different than the concerns of people who come at politics from a generational angle or the LGBT world or anybody uh, in the African-American community right now. Th those concerns are overlapping and different. But uh, we also have to stitch these concerns together into a broader story uh, and a broader reality of a better life. And that's where I think elements of freedom, security, and democracy, the sense of fairness that has always animated the kind of party that we are, uh, have to work. And, you know, I'm, I'm from a very diverse city. I don't know if people understand, you know, if all you know of South Bend is that you see uh, football broadcast from South Bend uh, uh, six times a year. You might not realize that, that we are a racially diverse community. Uh, we're about 45% non-white, uh, that we're a comparatively low-income community because of what we went through, uh, industrially speaking, and in many ways one, one that reflects uh, the country at large. So then that's actually a, a good segue into a question I was going to ask you, particularly about about African Americans, the foundation of the of the Democratic Party. And in mm -hmm. South Bend, you've had challenges when it comes to to police brutality. How are you navigating those issues? And, and what would community leaders, uh, especially African American leaders, say about you and your handling? of those issues? Well, I think I wouldn't have been reelected, and in particular, I wouldn't have carried African-American majority districts in the city of South Bend, in the primary and in the general, if I hadn't been able to uh, address those issues convincingly. But uh, frankly, there was a lot of pain in dealing with that. We dealt with these issues as a family. We've had issues with use of force. We've had issues with civil rights violations. Uh, any mayor, I think, spends a lot of time making sure that policing is done right. And we're on a journey that is not yet complete. But what I will say is uh, incidents of use of force are down. Complaints about the use of force are down. We've been very intentional, very inclusive, and engaged the community in a very deep way to make sure that these issues are addressed. And while uh, there have been criticisms, and uh, those criticisms come from a place that deserves to be taken seriously, again, I don't think I would have been able to win African-American neighborhoods uh, if uh, we had not found a way to come together as a community and navigate those things. And I think that's exactly the kind of test and the kind of skill set. Uh, and it's just fundamentally different than, than mm -hmm. uh, what you experience if you come at this as a legislator than if you come at this as an executive. Um, uh, it, it's just different. And I would hope that anybody who wants to understand our experience does come and, and speaks to not just people like me, but people in the community, people in the neighborhoods, uh, activists who care about these issues and, and, and have worked through this. Do you think your sexuality will hurt you, um, and and how would you deal with that? Again, I'm talking. I'm thinking. I'm talking about you. You're not talking about yourself, but I'm talking about you as a potential 2020 aspirant. Do you think um, being openly gay and a, and and a married man? So you're 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 a married <laughs> man. Um, do you think that will that will have an impact on how people view you and your potential for success? 
I don't know. The the honest answer is it's it's hard to tell. It's a bit funny to think about it, but um, there has never been an out candidate uh, in in America, uh, which sounds kind of strange until you think about the fact that 15 years ago, being for civil unions was dangerously forward leaning. <laughs> right. right? <laughs> so uh, you know, the only way to, to learn that, I guess, is when an out candidate steps forward, you'll be able to see whether it makes a difference. But if I learned one thing from the South Bend experience, it's that if if you give people, uh, if you trust people to weigh. Uh, uh, what you uh, what you bring to a job, um, people can rise to that, and um, you know the, the landscape is changing, but uh, it's it's also a challenging thing, especially in Indiana. I mean, Mike Pence was governor of Indiana mm-hmm. at the time that I came out, so mm-hmm. you know we <laughs> these issues are are very uh, kind of front and center for us, and it's it's just uh, hard to know how any feature of your profile uh, individually is going to affect people. I'd like to believe, in fact, I'm certain that in the end we evaluate the people who come before us asking for our votes as people, and any one facet of them is one facet, but hopefully it adds up into a picture that makes sense. I mean, you know, one facet is one facet, but this is a particular facet, as you said, we have not we have not seen before. No. Uh, are you prepared? Are you ready for the kind of... Um, attention that that will bring. Well, I mean, part of that's a, a family question that, that Jastin and I, my, my husband and I are, are thinking about and, and, and talking about. Um, I mean, how is anybody prepared for the pressures of, of, of these kinds of, uh, <laughs> of our... uh, arenas that you step into? Um, but, uh, you know, there are going to be a lot of firsts uh, this, uh, this cycle, no matter what. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm very conscious of being uh, one of the first millennials on this scene. Uh, one of the first post-9/11 war veterans on this scene, um, and uh, and being the first out person talked about in in this context is is just another part of a big picture. I should say that um, you you volunteered to go into the military. You're the Navy. Yeah, right? I uh, I was commissioned in the reserve uh, in uh, 2009. And you went to Afghanistan, Afghanistan yeah. for how many months? Uh, it was about a seven month deployment while or, you or were like mayor on the ground. Yeah, so uh, that was a little complicated. But <laughs> the thing with the reserve is, you know, you, the, the whole idea of the reserve is you leave your day job when your country needs you, and uh, you know everybody who leaves to go to war leaves behind something important, personally, professionally, or both. And so I realized that. I wasn't any different, and uh, I had a team that did a fantastic job during the time that that I was away. I stayed in touch with the office as much as possible, um, but obviously couldn't do the the kind of day-to-day work that uh, um, uh, that I I wish I was available to do. Um, But I also think that um, being in the military made me a better mayor. Um, I, if I remember reading correctly, you would have weekly meetings with who is it like your number two. Uh, yeah. there, there you are in Afghanistan <laughs> sitting on a hill somewhere <laughs> talking with him about what's happening back in South Bend. Yeah, I mean, right? just to be clear, it's not like I was on a, you know, standing on a rock in the Korangal Valley. But, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, on, on base, there'd be a spot where I could catch a Wi-Fi signal and, and uh, I'd, I'd Skype in. And it'd be a little funny because they'd be in their afternoon uh, uh, meeting and it was probably midnight where I was. And I'd light up a cigar and try, <laughs> try to follow along in the staff meeting and, um, you know, offer guidance where I could. It, it was definitely uh, a little... Uh, uh, jarring sometimes because uh, it, it was a change of scene. I think only once did an alarm go off while I was on the 
on the line with a colleague. But but uh, for the most part, it's just a way to be in touch. Uh, but I, I had a team that understood what the priorities were and delivered on them in a way that made me really proud during the time I was mm-hmm. away and then once I came back. So I, I, I got off on the, the this jag about your military service because I couldn't let it go. But you mentioned um, you mentioned it several times and I needed for people to know that um, uh, you are in the military. But I want to mm-hmm. come I want to come back. Well, so I'm, I'm, sorry. Uh, I'm no longer in the reserve. Okay, you're no yeah. longer in the reserve. Yeah. So I want to come I want to come back to to Chaston. Yeah. Um, and as you said before 2020 is a, is going to be a family conversation. Um, first, how how has he dealt with being married to the mayor? So Chesson got you know more than he bargained for. I think uh, you know when when he began dating me, uh, I was already in office, and that did make it uh, challenging for uh, for him. And and uh, there are parts of that 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 he didn't love, but also. Uh, <laughs> Um, you know, I think he's really grown into a role that never existed before, right? It, now he's a, a first gentleman of the city, and, and the city's embraced him, and he has embraced, I think, a, a part of our public life. In particular, he's he's very alive to the ways in which we can just make people better off, not only through policy but through presence. He'll always kind of uh, tug me into to going out to another community event or, or making sure we're, we're there for people in, in, in an informal way. And uh, it's funny. I mean, when I first got into elected office, I, I, I could not picture public life with, um, you know, with a spouse or a significant other. I didn't understand how people did it. Um, but now it's kind of hard to imagine the reverse, which is funny. We've, we've only been married. Uh, well, it was earlier this year we got married. Um, uh, but we've been together for, for about three years. And uh, um, that's something else that makes me a better mayor. And, um, you know, you need somebody who... Uh, whose regard for you is based on who you are, not mm-hmm. what you are. Um, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Well, huh. I, I actually know your wedding date, huh. June 16th, June 16th, June 16th right. 2018, to the day, yeah. the, three years to the day that you came out, uh, you got married to Chaston. Is he, is he prepared for what I could envision is a presidential campaign as, you know, the first openly gay person running for a major party's nomination and being the spouse of the person running for a major party's nomination. I'm not sure anybody can say with certainty what it even means to be prepared for something like that. What I will say is that, uh, you know, he's he's really come to understand and live into this public role. And at the same time, he's not about um, any public role. He's, he's, he's my husband. We love each other. We're, we're, uh, we're a household. And, um, I think he understands what's at stake. Um, he also just believes in me. Thankfully, I I couldn't do this if he didn't. (laughs) I mean, I would hope so. Um, and, and, you know, he wants me to, to, um, make a difference in, in the best way that I can. Uh, he was very involved during the DNC race too. And I think that gave both of us, even though it's a totally different, um, uh, a unique kind of campaign uh, because it only lasts about two months. Uh, but geographically, uh, it, it has that uh, in common with the national campaign in that you're in a different state every day and you're, uh, uh, you're on all these stages in terms of the media. And we've got some flicker, at least, of, of, of what that life is like and, frankly, how difficult it is mm-hmm. uh, and how challenging it is. I should also point out that uh, in the New York Times um, story about your wedding. You got married, and to your point about your husband sort of embracing the more public aspect of of your life, 
you then went and marched in a gay pride parade. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was right. kind of a Fresh block party. Off the but, altar. Yeah, and, and what it was there was it, that was by chance. But we, we realized, and he was saying, "Look, uh, you know, they're they're doing pride. South Bend has not generally done pride. I mean, there is, it's a relatively new thing in the community. Said, so, well, if we're if we're going to have this wedding, this gay wedding, <laughs> right, uh, be kind of weird if we didn't stop by pride that's going on two blocks from our church. So, uh, so of course, yeah, we came down off the altar. We stopped by there. It was it was wonderful, and then we went on to the reception. Uh, let me end by asking you this this question: When Frank Bruni of the New York Times wrote his column about you, he had a line in there where he said, I believe I have met the first gay president. When you read that line, um, how'd that make you feel? I mean, you spend a lot of time in politics, I think, learning not to let things go to your head. Uh, and, you know, the main thing on my mind was was just, uh, frankly, the, the main thing on my mind at the time was uh, it was coming at this period where South Bend was getting more, where I was getting more attention and South Bend too. And I was thinking about what that meant for South Bend and, um, and how I could uh, use that to benefit the city more. Um, look, part of being in politics is people come along all the time and put big ideas in your head. Um, the question you've got to ask yourself about every step you take from the first time you run for any office to the moment when you decide it's time to move on and have your life back or the voters decide that for you. Um, the, the questions you've got to ask are, uh, where do I belong? Is there some match between what a given community or district uh, or state or, or country needs and what I have to offer? Um, and, uh, and how can I make myself useful? And um, those are questions that um, you'll read all sorts of things about yourself that, <laughs> that may affect um, the, the way that, uh, that you're perceived. But at the end of the day, you, you've got to answer that question for yourself. But how does reading those words come on as a politician, as an American politician, to have someone of the stature of Frank Bruni say, I believe I've met the first gay president it had to have given you some kind of, I, I don't know, I, like Tinkerbell floating around. Like, I never thought I'd be in this position. <laughs> I'd have these words said about me. Well, I'll say this, and I don't remember the exact, the exact wording that, that was in the article, although I remember that, that headline, of course. Um, as recently as when I was in graduate school, which in my age isn't that long ago, um, I believe that there was probably going to be a choice in my life between uh, being out or being a public servant, at least in Indiana. And uh, the fact that that is not an either-or choice, something I could not have guessed um, as recently as, you know, even 10 years ago. Um, I think it shows how much change can happen in our politics, in our country. It shows how powerful the element of surprise is in, in our politics and in our country. Um, and uh, as anybody who's paid attention to the conditions in our country in the last few years knows, there are very good surprises and very bad surprises. But um, for me, being somebody who's, who's ultimately optimistic uh, about our country and, and, and about life in general, uh, it's a reminder of the idea that things may be possible that seem absurd today. And I think uh, great political vision involves selecting just a few things that seem absurd but also seem right, and being one of those who makes them possible. Pete Buttigieg, 32nd mayor of South Bend, Indiana. Thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. 
Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. The Washington Post's newest podcast, Post Reports, is doing something different. Every afternoon, we'll bring you stories about the state of the country. The number of false and misleading claims he made on the campaign trail the last few weeks is breathtaking. And the world. And I think that that is where climate change is starting to come in. It's causing fires to move more rapidly, to spread more rapidly, and also to burn hotter. The stories behind the stories and how we come to know the things we know. That's the sound of Antarctic snow. Healthy snow. Not healthy snow. Stories that capture the reality of the world inside and outside of Washington with nuance and unflinching honesty. That's Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers, and I can't wait to share this new podcast with you. Get it now at WashingtonPost.com slash Post Reports or wherever you get your podcasts.